Shit Platypus Says, Episode 17. I'm pleased to report that the situation in Chernobyl is stable. In terms of radiation, I'm told it's the equivalent of a chest X-ray. No. The fire was giving off nearly twice the radiation released by the bomb in Hiroshima. The official position of the state is that a global nuclear catastrophe is not possible in the Soviet Union. I mean, I watched, I watched the first episode and I thought, I, I, I came away thinking I had radiation poisoning. <laughs> but before that, like when I was, I was watching it, I, I, thought, I thought it was one of those disaster kind of movies or series where people just want to watch something awful or mm. something, is what I thought of the first episode. Um, and then kind of changed my mind as the series progressed. Yeah. There was a creepy part when they're in Chernobyl and the Aparachnik is meeting and they are trying to figure out what to do. And they're like, well, you know, the state, the party's telling us that it's not dangerous. And if the party tells us that it's not dangerous, then it's not dangerous, comrades. And this is actually our chance to shine. Like, this little town, Mm -hmm. like, we're going to be heroic. And this will be our moment. And the old man steps up in the back, and he's like, do you know the name of this plant? And it was like, Vladimir Lenin plant or something and he's like we're going to do this uh-huh, uh-huh. they all like clap really loudly and hug each other and it's really creepy we're in the lie together we know mm-hmm. that we're in the lie together i was listening to the podcast behind the series and the screenwriter um he saw this as a prime moment because for him this series is about what happens if you you just operate under like lies like in in the hierarchy of the bureaucracy it's just like lies and then he equated this to america with trump that the moral of the story is that if you have like lies in government it leads to disaster and like mass death or something oh jesus these fucking democrats a guy involved in the making of chernobyl tweeted it's impossible to watch hbo's chernobyl without thinking of donald trump like those in charge of the doomed russian reactor he's a man of mediocre intelligence in charge of great power economic and global that he does not understand and then this right-wing um u.s tv uh, opinionator got into that twitter spat with him um saying that this is like a crazy comparison and that trump has nothing to do with um uh, the russian bureaucracy in the 80s they were in a nuclear arms race with the united states and they were both armed to the teeth that was the sort of logic behind the promise of mutual annihilation right it's like dr strangelove Mm-hmm. Right? You both have the doomsday machine, uh-huh. right? Like, that's the logic behind having this kind of nuclear power um, and then lying about whether or not it works. Mm-hmm. The logic is the logic of war. It's not just like the Soviets lying. Um, mm-hmm. I watched um, this documentary called They Shall Not Grow Old. It's from last year. They put all this documentary footage of World War One together and they've restored it loads of documentary footage they've made it into this like color fluid film they've even recorded audio for it it's come to life in a way that i've never seen the war come to life you know in my generation mm-hmm. walking away from it i was like wow like the barbarism of war right it's all there like it's all in in the war you know that you have these people who were socialized in a completely different way mm-hmm. exposed to mustard gas bombs dropping on you mm-hmm. um it's it sounds mad to these people who have never even witnessed this kind of destruction by humanity before. And it put Chernobyl into perspective for me, you know, because like, are we dealing with differences of degrees of barbarism? The nuclear annihilation device is already there, like in the mustard gas and in those bombs of World War One. So these fucking Democrats, I mean, they can say it's about Trump or whatever, you know, but Mm-hmm. I thought the show was good. I don't know if I can answer the question of why it was made now, though. Yeah, I couldn't figure out its timeliness. And you could see, like, there was a character, the female scientist that had been created. 
Um, she apparently was an amalgamation of like different real life people. She didn't exist as a character, but they kind of made her by using different like historical voices that they'd researched and put into one character. Mm-hmm. And she very much was like the woman that had come to like speak. But I still didn't feel like there were huge like political overtones to it as a piece of art or something. Well, it's really like part of this kind of retro Stalinism, right? That we're in, like the Americans. You know, like, that was a big show. That was a really good show, I thought. What's the show? This The Americans. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's, like, during the Cold War, and there are these spies in the United States. There are these Soviet spies that have to, like, pretend to be just, like, one of the Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a bit of, like, Cold War nostalgia, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the 70s, mm-hmm. and then the 80s, mm-hmm. so... And Chernobyl is, you know, a lot of people said that this was actually kind of critical, in the reforms that happened within the Soviet states and then led to the fall of the Soviet Union. Well, it's, you know, the anniversary of 1989, I guess, right? So maybe that's part of the why now. Mm -hmm. It's kind of figuring out what happened there. How did this whole thing uh, end? Yeah. Platypus has the What Was Stalinism in Power reading group. Summer reading group. So we're all trying to recreate it, I guess, in our heads. Um, Since nobody in the 1989 panel that we had at our convention in Chicago, wanted to actually discuss 1989. And they were all people that lived through 1989, and we were all sitting in the audience, like a lot of members of Platypus having been born in the 80s and 90s, Yeah, and they weren't prepared to talk about it. They didn't want to talk about it, so we're going to talk about it. Right. Okay. Welcome to Shit Platypus Says, your one-stop shop for symptomology, necrology, and epidemiology of the left. My name is Pamela Nogales. We have a two-part episode for you today. In the first, I discuss the ascendance of the Brexit Party in the UK with veteran Marxist and Brexit Party candidate James Hartfield. James spoke at our Democracy in the Left panel at Goldsmiths University of London this past March. I will link the recording in our episode description. In the second half of the episode, we have a new segment called Shit Platypus Does. The segment is going to feature our chapter activities throughout the world. Today, Sophia and I are joined by members Ethan and Justin, who talk to us about building platypus at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, and all of the challenges that this poses. If you're interested in joining our summer reading group, 30 years of 1989, what was Stalinism in power? Please visit our website for more information at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus followed by the numeral 1917.org. Let's get started. Brexit and base blaring out of the sound system in Birmingham. As Nigel Farage ascended to a sea of glow sticks, organisers had billed this rally as one of the biggest political events in recent history. A very recent history for the Brexit party. Born in January, they say they've become the fastest growing party of recent years. We are upbeat. We are optimistic. We believe in Britain. We believe in the British people. And we believe that Brexit is the greatest opportunity any of us will ever see in our lifetimes. Hi James. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, I wanted to know about this Brexit party. I stood for the Brexit party as a candidate for the European Parliament, which I suppose is a bit of a paradox because um, our goal is to leave the European Union, um, Mm -hmm. but we're obviously we're standing for the European Parliament to mess it up. I said we should go with um, spanners and take the chairs away so nobody else could ever sit there again. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm involved in the Brexit party. But I guess, I don't know what, what will happen next. I don't know if there'll be a Brexit party in 10 years from now because if we succeed with our goal of getting out of the European Union, you know, I'm not sure that, I don't know why it would continue to exist but I'm sure that the changes that it's initiating will shape politics Mm -hmm. in the next 10 years. Why did you join this? 
The way I see it is uh, this is the right question right now, and that is the democratic question. I think it's a question which is posed probably all across the Western world, uh, perhaps across the world, which is um, the disconnect. It's the the betrayal of democracy that our elites have really uh, abdicated the field and are not interested in taking responsibility for leadership of the countries they govern and that's why we have to challenge them so we we the people uh, yeah I, I believe very strongly in the people i mean the people uh, let it be said is constantly in a process of uh, 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 self-creation and recreation when you say the people what you're talking about is um is that moment at any moment you're in life the um uh, society uh, pulls itself together to give itself a political expression and that's always the outcome of a kind of a debate and sometimes it's kind of lackluster and uh, feeble. Uh, I've been involved in the past in um, uh, struggles to give it a particular direction. I was involved in uh, the Revolutionary Communist Party in the 1980s and fought to give it a kind of a left-wing more than left-wing, kind of um, a revolutionary direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we pushed that as far as it could, but I guess, you know, the results would be that wasn't really where society was going. And um, I think uh, we're all of us now in the exhaustion of the politics of left and right, the, um, the way that uh, the two competing ideologies of uh, capitalism and socialism of the 19th and 20th centuries are exhausted and broken up and um, what I think everybody's doing now is trying to find out what's next. But isn't democracy, doesn't it have a, a relationship at least with a uh, kind of history of the left? Is it beyond left and right? Sure, I mean I, I don't think nothing in the future comes from the past but um, we're trying to work out a new politics for the for the 21st century. And um, I feel very strongly that we should be in it. Let me put it this way. It's the two highest polling political parties in British politics in the last four opinion polls. So the Brexit Party and the Liberal Democrats. Mm -hmm. And both of those are minority parties. The Brexit Party has only been in existence for about a month, two months. And that's not uncommon you know, I'm not describing a, a something that's um, not true, say, in Italy or in France or in Germany or in America. In a way, it's still contained within the shell of Democrats and Republicans. But I think you've got a kind of a new politics emerging there. So, yeah, I think this is um, wholly new conditions mm-hmm. that are being made right now. Mm-hmm. And these embrace all of us. You know, th- reflecting back, I'd say, put it this way, is that, you know, I've been uh, talking to people that I know for years about working class politics. And sometimes I felt that the, the terms in which we talked about it were vague and nonsensical and not connecting and uh, somewhat zombie categories. And then I was particularly uh, thrown, I think, when um, all the people that I argued with avoided the one pointedly working-class intervention uh, in politics since the Cold War, which is the referendum, Mm -hmm. which is a a solid working-class vote for change and in the face of a determined uh, establishment campaign for things to stay the same, to continue the old order. And um, I I was shocked. I mean, I was really shocked. I thought there would be some kind of left support for democracy. But, um, I mean, and there is some, I don't want to like go mad, but um, the astonishing vacation of the field by um, uh, the people that should have been on the side of uh, democracy against a a European bureaucracy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, astonished me, really. So, in this moment of neopolitics, do you see any room for socialism? socialist ideas? I don't know. I mean, I I don't think that's the question that's in front of us. I think in the industrial age, the the shape of elite domination over 
the mass was the um, capital, the domination of capital over labour. And I think that's why the Chartists couldn't rest with a discussion about uh, democracy and representation, but pushed it always on in their propagandistic writing, as opposed to their their day-to-day campaigning. Day-to-day campaigning was over the People's Charter, was about the vote. But their propaganda was about the plutocracy uh, and um, interest. They they generally characterised profit as interest and the uh, owed to the, the working class. And then Marx kind of comes out of that, I mean, brings in other elements in, but it's it was a, a discussion that was alive in its time, and it makes sense. Uh, all the categories of surplus value, capital, profit, these are the, um, the social forms of domination, uh, one class over another, uh, in the um, 19th and 20th century. And I don't say those things are gone, but um, they don't seem to be what's currently at issue. I see um, uh, questions of, uh, of social conflict, of um, uh, class difference, not discussed as class difference, but principally discussed as questions of uh, social justice, mm-hmm. of discrimination, oppression. I think that that's the lens in which we've been perceiving elite domination over the mass for a long time, um, and that's plainly inadequate. The greater mass of people do not see themselves in the what has descended into a rather elite discussion about um, rights. But as someone who is on the left, I wonder, isn't part of your job uh, when you intervene in a moment of a social and political crisis to further it, not just to repeat the same categories? I sense what you're saying, and I'm familiar with the argument, and um, I agree with it. But um, I want to say it's important that it's not the job of the left, let's say, or, or you know, whoever it is that's at the forefront of this uh, social change. I don't think it's our job to um, impose a an interpretation. On the contrary, I think what we need to do is elicit out of the real movement. I'm mm-hmm. thinking it, I can't quote it word for word. I'm thinking of a Marx quote about... We need to sing back the uh, tune of these fast fixed frozen relations. Mm-hmm. What Marx is saying is that he's not loading a kind of an interpretation on to events. He's seeking to elicit out of them mm-hmm. their actual trajectory and trend mm-hmm. and yeah. to make it manifest and to give it form and, mm-hmm. and clarity. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess... Mm-hmm. I imagine there must be somewhere in existence a kind of a Marxist interpretation of what the Brexit vote is, which would run something like this. I don't know. That, you know, 2008 crisis uh, uh, was so profound, was it? It created a social problem which is uh, lives under kind of false consciousness that uh, uh, we need uh, uh, to create a democracy of Britain in revolt against the Euro elites. But our proper job is to show this... Uh, revolt that in no in truth what they really meant was to be um, a workers movement that would abolish capital and lead to the um, dictatorship of the proletariat or something like that Mm. but I'd say that was horseshit Mm. I'm giving you a caricature because I don't think that's what's happening Mm -hmm. Um, first off I don't think the 2008 crisis was all that profound you know, the austerity program has not been as austere as ever it was in the 1980s or even in the 1990s, and certainly nothing like the 1930s. There are some dislocations in the British economy, but we're not in crisis, relatively wealthy country. But there's a political crisis. Right. I think it's largely unconnected to the questions of the movements of capital or um, the falling rate of profit, if the rate of profit is indeed falling, uh, or any of those things. We're talking about a, a social development or a kind of socio-political development, which is is um, arising out of the um, disintegration and corruption of social democracy. You know, it's been happening over a long period. You know, it, it precedes the end of the Cold War, which certainly uh, rang the bells for statist social planning. I think it comes out of the Blairite project of reinventing the Labour Party as something else, as being a kind of a 
technocratic elite uh, project, which is only really references socialism as a kind of social justice question. The Social Justice Commission was a, a Blairite project, and it's very much pro-EU, obviously, because uh, the EU and um, New Labour plainly had a very uh, an elective affinity. They're both post-Cold War institutions. Um, when I think of the EU, I'm really thinking mm-hmm. of the EU from 1993. Uh, and there's a corresponding process on the right, you know, which is uh, David Cameron's uh, reinvention of the uh, Conservative Party as we're not the nasty party. What that really meant was a kind of pretty intense drubbing for the Tory grassroots questions like gay marriage and um, all kinds of issues that were uh, not unimportant in their own self or were import, uh, you know, valuable, what have you. It was just that they were chosen to reinvent the party, to make it into a kind of a Blairite party. They used to call him uh, Osborne and um, Cameron called Tony Blair the master. Hmm. You know, that he was their model. The centrist project has been to drive the masses out of politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, this is where we are. We're in a process where the masses are reasserting their claim to be in politics, and they're doing it in ways that uh, surprise people. You know, uh, we didn't think that a Brexit party would be a particular vehicle for reasserting mass participation, but I think it is. We didn't think the referendum, the referendum campaign, uh, you know, to lots of people who are using a old-fashioned Marxist framework, it simply passed them by. It wasn't even that they were cross about it or uh, whatever. They thought it was irritating that it had somehow uh, distracted attention from their pet project. So we live in a moment of a kind of opportunity insofar as this neoliberal consensus, this elite that has pushed the masses out of politics, this is breaking, Mm -hmm. or it's sort of cracks are showing. So you think of this moment as a moment of, of opportunity. What's the best possible outcome of this this moment of political crisis? I'd say the best uh, outcome is a, a return of the public. The people have uh, reasserted themselves as a factor in, in life. Go to Paris to see the Gilets jaunes protests. Mm-hmm. This uh, uh, manifestation of we are the people was um, and has been a, a a paralyzing factor in uh, French political life, uh, which I think is um, truly fabulous. And this is the revolution, Pam, I want to say to you. Here it is. It, you know, it doesn't look like what you think it looks like. When people impose themselves upon political structures uh, to the point of destruction, you know, we're testing these political structures to destruction. This is what it looks like. There's a revolution for it. Freedom? Is it a revolution from the left? What? what? Well, you're a, I, I don't get it. Why do you want it to make uh, the world? Why, why do you want to make the future bow down to the past? Do you want to fit it into the Not categories past. of... Well, they're, they're, you're talking the inherited categories of the past, freedom. aren't you? No, I mean, uh, well, freedom, yes, but freedom I feel good about. But um, the left, I don't know if the left is... Why would the left be important? I mean, I don't believe there is a left. Uh, um, I see no continuity in the positions that um, uh, fall under the category left. I would like there to be one. I but, don't know if it exists today. Well, whatever. The, I mean, the, then we're in a kind of language game because I don't care what, what you call it. Okay. I mean to say that um, there is a movement, there is a social movement of people that are uh, seeking to uh, master their own conditions and those people will make the future. So I guess I, I say this only because when the people affirm themselves, it's not necessarily in the interest of human freedom. There are all sorts of reactionary ways in which the people, in an attempt to master their conditions, can leave a legacy that is actually undermining the possibility of human freedom. Is that just a sort of gamble that you're willing to take or is that not part of the consideration? Meaning things can always get worse. Sure, and absolutely. I, t- I think that's an important point. And, you know, there's a real responsibility in um, everything. And that's why I, I want to be in it. Yeah. And the people that I talk with are from many, many different uh, political traditions. Some are uh, free marketeers and some are uh, social conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are old-fashioned labourites. 
you know, all kinds of different political positions uh, represented in the room, as it were. And the what really intrigued me was that uh, as we we're all talking to each other about what we wanted to see in the manifesto, um, how pointedly nobody wanted to ride their own hobby horse. You know, that at the minute anybody started saying, let's make this, uh, you know, free market party or let's make this... Um, a law and order party that uh, immediately that caused everyone to back off because we all know that um, it's a very unstable coalition mm -hmm. as far as um, those positions are because they're really they're, they're the politics of the past mm -hmm. you know when you buy a blank piece of paper like, like an empty notebook if you opened it up and there was writing inside you'd feel cheated wouldn't you? You'd be robbed because what you hoped, which was the freedom of the blank page, would be uh, covered up by somebody else's notes. What you're asking for is the right to make your own policy in the future, not to tie down all future possibilities to the past. But uh, 1776 came up a lot in the speeches. Yeah. Uh, a lot of your colleagues in the party uh, said that this was a moment, uh, right, that we should rebel like the colonies did. So they were they were connecting themselves to a specific past. Um, I think the past that you're talking about is the 20th century socialism. I'm not saying that you can't reference the past to understand uh, the prospect for the future. What I'm saying is, um, I remember this as a, so I'm going to go into a very arcane historical argument, which is about Irish republicanism and English uh, solidarity therewith. And uh, at a certain point, I remember this as a conversation I was as a campaigner for Ireland's right to govern itself. Uh, it was put to us uh, by the uh, supporters of the Irish Republican Socialist Party. You really should your policy, comrades, should be for an independent socialist republic. Mm. And we said, no, no, you're mistaken, because it's not our job mm. to decide uh, whether Ireland should be a socialist or a capitalist country. Uh, that's your job. And our job, as it were, addressed to the future is we're not saying uh, Britain should be self-governing so that it can become a, a socialist republic mm -hmm. or so that it can become a free market um, buccaneer state. That's not the issue. The issue is that it should be self-governing. Mm -hmm. The whole issue of what the European Union was, which is, I don't know if I said, or, you know, this was my PhD, it's what I discovered uh, when I was looking at the point of the European Union is to trap uh, governments, or rather, it's a way that governments used to trap themselves. Um, they used it, elites used it, uh, to limit the prospects for the future. They wanted to tie themselves in to punitive uh, spending programs uh, so that the opposition wouldn't be able to seize control of the government and load them with uh, some kind of over-ambitious welfare plan or some other policy. So locking policy in. It was always about locking policy in. It was about subordinating national governments to a predetermined future. And that's the opposite. You know, you're talking about, that's the difference between bureaucratic, technocratic rule uh, and democracy. One is about uh, an opening. One is about um, clearing the space, about the blank sheet of paper. And the other is, no, no, it must be like this. So the people that say to me, I would like, you know, independent uh, Britain, but only if we keep this, that and the other policy. And I'm thinking, well, no, no assembly can bind itself in perpetuity. Uh, the point surely is that uh, we want to create the maximum freedom uh, for a, a constituent assembly of the future to, to determine what uh, outcome. So the democracy that will come from a self-governing UK would be one potentially that would decide on socialism or not? Well, indeed. And, uh, you know, the future is theirs to fight for. So look, I'm describing this experience. I was in a room and we're all arguing about what the future is. And um, this is the thing that uh, shocks me is that Anybody could be in that room that wanted to be. The people that were in that room were in the room because they're the ones who uh, campaigned over the referendum. And that's how they got the status to, to participate in the discussion. Uh, but there's no barrier. I, I would say, on the contrary, the Brexit party's calling out. They want people. They want people from the left. They want people from the right. They want all people involved in it because... The only thing that really unites them is the determination to push this thing over the line. So 
does Marx matter today or is it just a question of maybe it might matter in the future well that's a weird thing to say to me but um because well, I wanna know. no no i mean I'm, I'm, to me i'm thinking because i read lots of marks all the time and uh, yeah. he's been really useful and um i wonder sometimes why yes. uh, and um uh, and i guess the answer is because um it was a fabulous uh, summation you know the mid uh, 19th century what marx achieved a kind of a summation of um, all the different strands of human knowledge uh, and more than that you know in a sense of um, anticipation uh, and openness to the future and uh, so honestly I get a lot out of it still and uh, I'm writing right now I'm working on a, a history of um, empire I want to do a kind of British empire thing um, which you didn't write a lot about uh, lots of people think they're Marxists um, have written about empire but don't really understand it very well you know, and I think there are certain things about, you know, the, of looking at the the balance between classes, between the necessary labour time and the surplus labour time. These are great categories for trying to understand the material conditions or the material social conditions of the uh, generalisation of, uh, I, I don't know what you call it, kind of uh, capitalism across the globe. So I find this useful all the time. Yeah, he's great. I love him and all that. But um, I don't, first off feel the need to defend Marx and um, uh, that's because I don't think we're in the Cold War uh, his reputation is not being fought over uh, you know he seems to get quite high praise uh, in lots of liberal papers largely that, uh, because uh, in the process people are loading their own views onto Marx which he may or may not support I think mostly may not but um, I don't really care that much if you misrepresent Marx because Marx is dead he doesn't care uh, and we're not defending a, a political project which has uh, got a big banner of the beardy guy at the front of it. Uh, so I don't feel the need to defend it. You know, I'm a Marxist like I'm a, a Newtonian and even an Einsteinian, if I could get my head around it, uh, or, or in the way that I'm a Lockean or, um, you know, a, a student of Rabelais or Heraclitus. It's all of these different people. They are objectively carried human understanding forward it doesn't mean that their insights true for all time you know that or their prognoses are not true for all time but the the underlying uh, method and approach and instincts of marx or anybody that's uh, you know a serious social critic are all valuable today you wrote an introduction to state and revolution in 1993 I did, yes. And would you say the same things then about Lenin? Oh, yeah, no, I think Lenin's a great guy. I mean, uh, you know, lots of people I'm getting on rather well with now, rather hate him, but then lots of people hate Marx too. But, um, you know, who cares? Yeah, without doubt that Lenin, both as a kind of doctor diagnosing the social ills, uh, but as a political leader, kind of manifesting the the movement of the anti-colonial revolt, I think is without peer. You know, the man made the uh, 20th century, and it, uh, obviously it's painful, I mean, shaming and depressing to look at the way that um, uh, Stalin buried his legacy and turned his every word into its, more or less into its opposite, and made his his image a kind of poster for vile repression which means it's very hard to get back to the meaning of Lenin but um, I think if you read Lenin you know his critique of postmodernism is off the chart brilliant in what is to be done when he writes about the swamp uh, you don't need to read Jameson or Foucault <laughs> because he's already explained what they've got wrong. well it reminds me you know this bit Lenin's critique about the um, the economists and how you first have to establish you know sort of a democracy in order to uh, in order to fight for socialism right and and the critiques against this position and so our conversation a lot of it seems to be about that you think the moment right now the opportunity that presents itself is kind of reclaiming of of of, of self-government of a certain kind of democracy and that you see this potentially open for the future but wouldn't, you know, maybe I could argue, right, with Lenin, that um, maybe the moment is potentially ripe for something else, and that if one is not furthering these questions about socialism, maybe the moment passes us by. 
Well, maybe, and you know, maybe it, we deserve it. But um, socialism to me is not like the magic word that's going to open the future. I, when I think of what the the essence of the uh, what the socialist movement was, you know, determination to master events that you were out of your control. I think that, um, you know, and I don't care what you call it. I'll call it socialism. You know, let's call it socialism. If that's what it is, then I'm all for it. And I'm not saying that there's necessarily a, an absolute priority of democracy. And I don't think of it as a, like a temporal thing. Okay. You know, it's not like, you know, we must do this and then that. It's like a logical priority. Hmm. Here was a crystal clear question. Britain, a democracy or have its laws made in the European Union? This was a class question. Uh, you know, if you were Michael Heseltine or David Cameron, it was pretty clear what side you were on. Uh, but all the people that I met who were Brexiteers, as I would call them now, they were um, leavers then, uh, they were just the mass on the street, the people on the street. The sheer joy of discovering that um, uh, people you meet on the high street are more knowledgeable about the constitution, about the constitution of the European Union, about the political meaning of those constitutions, than the people I spent four years with at the University of Westminster's International Relations Department. Mm. I was reminded there's a great uh, aside in Hegel where Hegel has this uh, dissection table and there's, uh, you know, the body's been dissected and um, uh, the surgeon turns around uh, uh, to the man's wife and says, behold, your husband. And um, the point being that uh, what Hegel's making is that when you dissect something, when you deconstruct it, you don't actually understand it. You're breaking it down. Uh, and real understanding is not just to dissemble and to disintegrate and to break down into its parts, but to reconstruct, to reconstruct in thought uh, what it meant. And that's what I thought was gr- thrilling. I'm talking to people uh, in the high street in Huddersfield who are saying to me, explaining about what you know, why a second referendum would be an affront to those who voted in the first. And this is a a wake-up call. Mm. You know, these people are cleverer Mm. than the clever people. Mm. Um, I mean to say the mass, when they uh, start to think, that's a real force in history, isn't it? That's thought made manifest. You have this history uh, with the Revolutionary Communist Party. It's true. And I was wondering if past James were to manifest here (laughs) what would he he say say? god knows he'd probably be telling me off yeah i know this but he'd be a fool (laughs) but um no i mean look these are interesting uh points you know i've argued with my daughter says what the hell is this going on but um i would say that i guess the reason uh why i and other people that were involved in that political party in the the revolutionary communist party in the 1980s and 90s, you know, close to the 90s, are more Brexity, is that we were always very interested in the uh, national question, you know. And um, uh, in fact, you know, my recollection is that lots of people who uh, you call left wing would have thought we were somewhat obsessed with the Irish freedom and um, uh, racism, they would say. In fact, I think there's a, an article, isn't there, by Alex Kalinikos, uh, which denounces the RCP for being obsessed with questions of uh, Ireland and racism. But I do think those were valuable because what we always paid a strong attention to, and I think this was the Leninist as much as the Marxist heritage, was a question of national liberation. And uh, that was generally speaking, when we were raising it, it was um, we didn't raise it as a case for British independence. We were raising it as a case for Irish independence. And in a sense, we were really seeking to attack a British nationalism, which we perceived as a, as a barrier. So, yeah, I think uh, James of 1980 might have been a bit surprised by uh, James of uh, 2019. <laughs> My claim that consistency in this is that um, the core of what we were doing, I thought, was always about um, democracy. And I'm uh, distressed, really, and depressed by the the left's inability to understand the value of democracy, which, again, a bit like the sovereignty question, they um, their immediate instinct is to deconstruct. You know, and you did it a bit yourself when you kind of said the people, or, you know, big 
um, implied inverted commas around there. Uh, the people, uh, you know, there is a Marxist tradition of critiquing the concept of the people, that's true. But, you know, always, I think, in the context of um, driving democratic spirit in Marx, you know, they called their movement the democracy. That's what it, they called it in the 1840s. And they refer to themselves as the democracy. Social democracy, though. But No, no, I, I, I agree. And I'm interested in that thing. And also, I, th- I don't think social democracy is a rubbish idea, by the way. Yeah. I think it's it doesn't become false. Because social democracy was raising the question of whether constitutional political representation, right, was the means through which to do away with the social problem. And so Marx comes from a tradition of a critique of of existing democratic thought. No, I think that's true. And um, uh, and that critique is right at those moments. Uh, you know, they, when they said social democracy, I guess, and I'm, I, I'm, I don't mean to like tread on your toes because I think this uh, we're saying the same thing, is that he meant political democracy is not really the issue because um, yeah. actual social power is exercised elsewhere through private property. And that would say that's right, that those are the issues of the industrial age where uh, social domination is affected around the back of um, uh, parliaments and what have you. And I'm not saying that's not necessarily true now, neither. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm doing uh, clever mm-hmm. Trevor there, aren't I? Mm-hmm. Um Knock me down with a feather. But right now, this is the issue as it's posed. I think um, there's a realism I like in Lenin, you know, um, when he was talking about the anti-imperialist struggle, you know, and against the socialists. It's kind of weird to be raising the issue about, um, you know, who owns the means of production as a way of, of sabotaging the question of democracy or not. Uh, you know, this is the thing that's in front of us. I think there is a sense of this is the thing that's in front of us. I take your point about um, economism. You know, I don't want to drift with ideas. At different times, I've assumed that that meant that you have to abstract yourself and not be drawn in. You know, that's why I didn't join Momentum. Uh, but then at other points, I think, uh, you know, when the issue is good, you have to get stuck in. I'm not saying, uh, you know... Uh, you know, forever. I'm just saying this right now, this is the thing. I don't think the Brexit party is going to be a mass political party like um, the Labour Party uh, was, but I don't know. You know, um, at the moment, they're only trying to change politics for good. That's their slogan, and I think that's a good one. Thank you, James. It's all right. platypus does segment it's an honor the purpose of a shit platypus does segment is to feature our members and all of the hard work that they do for platypus wherever in the world that they are so where are you guys right now and where are you doing platypus i'm ethan and i am currently based in fairfax virginia uh that's where the chapter is based out of george mason university and I'm Justin. I'm based out of Arlington, and we do platypus at Fairfax. So how did you guys come across platypus to begin with? My story starts in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I was going through my emails one day, and I saw an email about a Marxism and Anarchism Radical Ideologies Today panel that they were hosting. And I let that email sit in my inbox for two years before I opened it. <laughs> and I finally opened it during the uh, 2016 election when I was starting to get into Bernie. And I started going to reading group. Down there we had Grady and Matt, and they were fantastic in getting my interest going. 
I was there going through the reading group for a semester, and then I really started to take it seriously the next semester, so after a year in the reading group. And then the next year, my second year, we were graced with the presence of the almighty Spencer Leonard. Spencer Leonard. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much I would have been able to unlearn about my own leftism without Spencer. How would you describe your the bad leftism? What do you mean by that? I came up really interested in like a kind of Chomsky anarchism when I first got into the left. Before that, I was just a, a libertarian. I always joke that my journey to Marxism started when I campaigned for Ron Paul in 2012. Huh. <laughs> How old were you? Yeah, I, I was 15 or 16. I couldn't even vote. I would just campaign for him. I was like really, really into the anarchist scene, reading Kropotkin and, and Bookchin and, and that kind of thing. And so how would you describe that turning point or the kind of clicking point onto Plaspus? Yeah. I guess it was probably going through the spring syllabus when we get to revolutionary Marxism and just understanding that not only do Lenin and, and Luxembourg and Trotsky and all of them come out looking as more committed to freedom than any anarchist writer I ever read, but also that anarchists themselves just don't really have an understanding of, of you know, history. So Justin, do you have a, a similar experience to coming to Platypus through anarchism? Or how did you find Platypus? I'm a lot like Ethan. I actually also kind of went through a very libertarian right-wing phase. Also was a big Ron Paul fan when I was 16. And I also kind of came over through the Bernie campaign, which I, you know, I worked on it a little bit volunteer, but I actually started to get into Antifa sort of before the election happened. And then when it happened, I felt sort of a strange sense of relief that Donald Trump had won. It was kind of weird and I didn't know how to feel about it. And that's when I really thought, oh, maybe there's, you know, something deeper than just Bernie, just a uh, social democracy. So I really started to get into the kind of the weird anarchism, Antifa scene. And uh, in my town, in the college town I went to, Richmond, Virginia, there was kind of a strange scene divide between anarchism and Marxism-Leninism or Maoism. And I found myself gravitating more towards the Maoism. And I had to do that for about a year. I was part of a, a small kind of sect organization that orbited around the Marxist center. And when that kind of dramatically collapsed, I, I sort of was very disoriented. And I tried to find sort of a uh, kind of a newer thing because I the educational program wasn't so great. I found leftism to be sort of very eclectic. I couldn't really define Marxism in, in a very coherent way. And so I kind of started to consume pieces from a lot of different sources. A lot of things that kept coming up was platypus and I was sort of like oh what is this thing and I you know I looked it up and I kept hearing critiques of platypus and I sort of wanted to hear the what platypus had to say I actually started listening to the podcast I started reading the the PR and from then on I just sort of found myself thinking oh I I really kind of want to be a part of this and can I just ask if there was like a clicking moment for you with platypus as well or what was it that really drew you to the project I think really it took starting the reading group for me to maybe commit to Platypus. I thought maybe I could be sort of an orbiter of it, maybe like a kind of an associate of it. But then I think from that point, I started to understand that what I understood as Marxism was a very disjointed and very eclectic thing with no real philosophy of history and sort of like a very easy to lead you down a lot of kind of incoherent routes. And so I think really the reading group solidified sort of like, oh, wow, they, this is a really great perspective from which to kind of approach Marx, Lenin, Trotsky, etc. Well, Justin, if I remember, you came in having read things like Postone and, and, and Marx's Capital, but you hadn't had any experience with the bourgeois philosophy? No, I had had no experience, and that was actually sort of the most exciting part of the reading group. You know, at first I came in and thought, what's the use of this? I was reading Postone time, labor, and social domination. And I was very into the fact that I had read Capital twice. And so I sort of thought I had it all figured out. But the bourgeois philosophy kind of surprised me with how how useful it was for Marxism. But now you're working together. Is that right? You're, you're both working on a chapter together? 
Right now, yeah, we only have the one chapter at George Mason, and we're both there. Um, we kind of had a division of labor. So what's going on? How how are you as Platypus intersecting the left scene in the area? What's, yeah. what's going on with the left? The campus left, when we got there, was... It, was, it had some promise. Uh, I went to the first meeting of the semester for the Young Democratic Socialists, the YDSA, and they had about 20 members and they had their local elected official from the DSA. He made a lot of news because he was in the DSA and he identified as a socialist and he, he won a, a council seat or something like that. And he showed up at the first meeting and, and I, we had some exposure to the SDS or the new SDS, excuse me, the Students for Democratic Society. They're but, still around? Well, no, that, that doesn't have a happy ending. They gave off the appearance of being a lot bigger than they were. They actually were just three members, I think. And by the end of the year, both the SDS and the YDSA had collapsed completely. They don't exist on campus anymore. So non-campus left. Were there any Trotskyists around or any Maoists around? The Trotskyists in the area are affiliated with the Socialist Workers Party, um, but they're difficult to contact. They have an answering machine that they never listen to, and I think they... They don't have any Facebook page or any events that they host. They're, they're hard to find. Really hoping that they're on the more orthodox side so they, would, they could present an interesting point of view on any panels we had, but we haven't been able to get a hold of them so far. Mm. There's also the Progressive Labor Party. I guess they're kind of a Maoist organization. They are they're actually pretty active in the area. Um, I think they have some members in the IWW. And um, I've, I've gotten a hold of a couple of them just recently when we're trying to organize an Anthropocene and the, and the left panel. There's the PSL. I don't know much about them. They're kind of secretive. Um, oh, and then there's Socialist Party USA. Um, they're, they're active. They hold events. They hold like anime watch parties and that kind of thing. Anime uh, watch parties? Anime watch parties? Yeah. What? Yeah. Although I think that most of their members are folding into the non-political stuff like the DSA. The anime they showed is about, it's about like an anthropomorphic rabbit, I think, that um, goes to a crappy office job and then goes home and sings black metal. And so I think that was kind of supposed to be like a critique of compulsory work. (laughs) The nine to five grind. Okay. I mean, I guess it's like social. Right. Well, I mean, a lot of the left in the area, at least in our experience, is just kind of a subculture thing. Yes. I talked to one person. She was the president of the YDSA, and she didn't even like to be asked the question, what is socialism? She hated to answer that. These, you know, it's strange that they're in a group with socialism in the title, and yet they don't want to talk about it sometimes. So what is the immediate question if what is socialism is not a valid question for a, a leftist? I think it's more that you need to be on board with what the organization was doing. So at the time, like um, tuition hike demonstrations, tear down the Confederate statues, that's a big thing in Richmond, stuff like that. Sort of, if you're on board with that, then you can join. You don't really have to be on board with socialism. Maybe we can talk about that a bit because I wanted to know, yeah, what is the activity of the left, the left that exists in your area? So you said fighting the tuition hikes. Justin told me just the other day that there's a lot of NGOs in the area. They're the government and the left, to the extent that the left exists here, um, they're, they're pretty small. In, even in a big city, they're kind of small, but they're, uh, they're really intertwined with the NGOs and um, campaigning for the Democrats uh, in the upcoming election. What, what have been, have there been like specific issues on the activist left, like what are they preoccupied with apart from election campaigns or is that really what's consuming them? Yeah, so one of the big things is that Amazon um, recently announced their HQ2, their second headquarters was gonna be in Arlington, Virginia, which um, is just over the river from DC. And it's moving into a relatively affluent area uh, called Crystal City, Arlington. The point is that they believe it's going to gentrify even the poorest parts of DC, basically anywhere with like metro access, even uh, there's a pretty poor part called Prince George's County that they think is going to be very gentrified. That's taken up a lot of time and uh, recent energy on the left in this town. I think the hope is that 
much like New York City, they can kind of convince Amazon to leave. The other issue that I've noticed and that we've seen recently is um, support for the Maduro government. There was a recent action, a big protest outside of the Venezuelan embassy kind of demanding hands off of Venezuela. Who organized that? I believe the PSL was heavily involved, but I think it may have just kind of been a Facebook event that popped up. How have you guys been able to engage the left when it comes to platypus activity? Beyond recruiting them to our reading group, we haven't had much um, engagement with the left. Part of that is because to put on events like panels and interviews, we would need at least a room to hold that event in, if not some funding to get the speakers. And through a variety of bureaucratic obstacles, we just weren't able to become a registered student organization this past year. I'm actually pretty excited about the upcoming semester. The fall, we should be able to put on some more events. Once we become a registered group, I've already got about six names for Anthropocene in the left panel, or Anthropocene and Freedom. Um, a couple of them are old new leftists. They went to they went to college in the 60s. Why are you thinking it's timely to hold an Anthropocene in the left panel? Well, it's it's fascinating to me because I just happen to find all these names at once and they all seem to fit together on a coherent panel. But also, I was discussing with Andoni the other day that there's supposed to be a climate strike. They're trying to make an international coming up this fall, maybe September. It's been happening in London, the Extinction Rebellion. Also in Berlin. You know, the recent Extinction Rebellion kind of discourse around um, kind of the youth and the results of climate change. That's something we've kind of seen from Alexandria. The recent kind of rhetoric around uh, climate change has been something that I think we're going to continue to see leading into 2020. But the Extinction Rebellion stuff has been huge. There's also been a lot of talk about like the Trump administration's non-committal regard for uh, climate change issues as a whole. And I think it's increasingly on the left, it's something that we're kind of starting to see almost as a an appeal to desperation, as in like, we don't have much time left, we have to get on climate change. I wanted to hear about what you found difficult. Like, I understand the bureaucratic red tape and just kind of getting things off the ground, which is, you know, the sort of mechanics of putting a campus chapter together. But what do you find difficult in terms of bringing the questions that Platypus tries to address to a new place. I know that um, one of the things that uh, you wrote in the notes for our conversation today was that you're not you're not like a Chicago transplant, you know, you're not from the original city where Platypus started now over 13 years ago. Now it's something else, right? Like people are starting Platypus in, in new places. And so what was what was difficult about that? Perhaps it's not a Ethan original, but I, I've started calling it the Chicago effect, where perhaps maybe a student will take Chris's class or, or at least they'll come up recruited in a Chicago chapter and then as they graduate school, they might go somewhere else and start a chapter there. That's how a lot of chapters start, but that's not how I was recruited. Knoxville was n- never a Chicago um, outgrowth. Fairfax is not either, Um, and it's presented its own challenges because, I mean, in Chicago, you have that 12 or 13 year history stretching back, Um, you know, every generation of platypus is represented there. You can go to a reading group, you can ask about the history of Marxism, or you can ask about the understanding of platypus as an organization. You can learn a lot that way. We're not able to do that. We have to do it in a very mediated way. We can put on platypus activities, of course, and learn that way through the tripod. We can learn through pedagogy calls, and we're trying to come up with new initiatives like regional conferences. Maybe the whole, maybe the whole East Coast will get together one day in New York and, and Philadelphia mm-hmm. and Fairfax and New Hampshire will all come and converge, and, and we'll be able to share our experiences there. And so it's been really tough to get any feedback on if we even understand what we're teaching these students. We're supposed to be, you know, the experts on the organization and uh, we're still learning it ourselves. And that's that's been tough to both be confident in what we're teaching the students and also to not convey our own inadequacies. 
Well, Platypus is an educational project, and I and I think that even when one begins to teach, the idea is that you're still learning. There has to be room for making mistakes and and saying half truths, and then going back and reevaluating what you said. And I understand that I I'm not going to be able to, you know, be a total expert overnight. Um, but I also don't want to be a platypus vulgarizer, so to speak. I don't want to just be trying to absorb as much as I can about the history of Marxism and the Proletopus project and then not having a, not, I don't want to come to the realization that I never really understood it at the, at the end of the day. I think I should tell you <laughs> as a founding member of the organization that you do kind of wake up every once in a while and say, do I really get it? Or have I been <laughs> pretending for the last 12 years? Um, <laughs> you know, it's sort of part of the existential crisis of doing Platypus, which is that uh, you're constantly trying to understand. And what I am really appreciative of, though, is having the context in which I can ask very big questions, right, about the meaning of history and Marxism, which I really, as an academic, I can tell you that I, I can't ask these questions in an academic setting about the left, about the meaning of socialism. And so yeah. it just makes me keep consuming and uh, creating pedagogy for Platypus. It's a very unique context uh, in which to learn, but the existential crisis, as um, some members like to put it, is a constitutive part of being a member of this organization. That sort of dread of, um, are we doing it right? And are we teaching people? Am I teaching myself? Am I learning? Am I still learning? Am I just saying these things? Do I actually know what I'm saying? Um, you kind of have to take it as part of your, as your membership. Justin, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I I want to echo everything you said about the Chicago the Chicago effect. I know we've had conversations about it, but I think it's sort of the disconnection from a lot of the older generations of platypus. They make it seem difficult to answer questions, at least to you know our prospective recruits and our reading group members about the purpose of the project in a way that doesn't make Ethan or even you know maybe even to a lesser degree me seem like we're the most knowledgeable. Like, I know if, if we're the only tangible sort of interaction with platypus in in the flesh that people can get, that maybe they'll take us completely uncritically. And that can mm -hmm. be a difficult thing, I think, to convey is that, you know, we, we should be engaged with completely critically. And so should the left. But it also makes it difficult to reproduce things like the platypus review or the tripod because... You know, I, I don't have any experience with putting on panels, interviews, coffee breaks, etc. And, you know, Ethan's the only one who does. One thing that Ethan conveyed to me recently is that there's more than one way of doing a reading group. Because I'm set to lead the reading group next semester for the next year. I thought, you know, the only way to do it was the way Ethan does it, which is we kind of work through the text chapter by chapter and sort of break it down as we go. But he recently told me there's other ways where you can kind of just say, did anyone have any questions and kind of leap off from there. I didn't know that people did it differently in Chicago, London, you know, or Greece or San Francisco, for instance. I just wanted to say, um, if um, you have a question about reading groups and you want to know how people in London are doing the reading group, you can reach out and have a quick conversation with a pedagogue in London. If you want to know how people are doing it in Berlin, you can reach out and have a conversation with whomever's having it in Berlin. And also, one of the other things you guys should know is that within the organization, we do have kind of an informal mentorship. And so, for example, I have someone that I'm mentoring who is in our Vienna chapter, and we meet every other week to discuss an article in the PR or to discuss a transcript of an, of an event. And so you should feel free to reach out to people it can be really, um, it can be really daunting to do platypus. And you know, what's really great is that you guys have one another. It sounds so cheesy, but like having another <laughs> person, really having another person to do platypus with is like a million times better than trying to do it alone. And so just like having one another to sort of, you know, be frustrated together or like celebrate a small victory of getting someone on a panel or going to an event and looking at each other over a beer and saying, what the fuck was that about? Goes a long way. No, you have no idea. We're like a regular Marx and Engels down here. Like we got a, we got a, couple, <laughs> we got a bromance going on. Good to hear.
That sounds great, guys. Um, on that note, I think I think we're gonna leave it there. Uh, thanks so much for talking, Sophia and I, and we wish you all the best. And we look forward to hearing what comes out of Virginia very soon. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, we really appreciate Bye. it. Thanks, guys. Yeah. I'm the one, bitch, I am the one Like Keanu Reeves, get it done Yeah, I get it done, no blood on the leaves They can't leave us hanging, no, no, not no more Best believe, yeah, that shit is banging Bobby killed it with no time to grieve I'm the one, bitch, I am the one Like Keanu Reeves, get it done Yeah, I get it done, no blood on the leaves They can't leave us hanging, no, no, not no more Best believe, yeah, that shit is banging Bobby killed it with no time yeah. to grieve At the garden, sitting courtside Looking around like, oh my God I just sold this motherfucker out I ain't even try, I ain't wanna floss But I Got plaques, run it back Once I touch down, I go deep like a running back Just jumped on the private jet and wrote a joint Played a beat and wrote that joint Wrote a whole movie, then I sold that joint Fuck Illuminati, that boy Six got my back Six make this beat, Six bring the heat You got on repeat Word on the street, can't no one compete I'm spectacular, that boy got the sauce on the regular I don't play no games, let's be talking Fortnite Finally knew I made it sitting at the red light When the soccer moms pull up in they van while I ride Like, oh my god, children, it's the 1-800 guy But my door's suicide, yeah, I'm too alive Bitch, I have arrived, everybody know I'm one hell of a guy I ain't tryna fuck your girl, I'm tryna fuck your mama Fuck the drama, bank account got an extra comma Yeah, they sweat me like the sauna Red carpet in my own merch like that shit is designer Did you know I'm mixed like Obama? It ain't a project if logic ain't talk about being biracial Bicoastal, I'm platinum, go postal, I'm snapping Yeah, you know Bobby, but probably only know my new shit That trap shit, that cool shit, but they all know that full spit I'm the one, bitch, I am the one Like Keanu Reeves, get it done, yeah, I get it done No blood on the leaves, they can't leave us hanging No, no, not no more, best believe Yeah, that shit is banging, Bobby killed it with no time to grieve I'm the one, bitch, I am the one Like Keanu Reeves, get it done, yeah, I get it done No blood on the leaves, they can't leave us hanging No, no, not no yeah, that shit is banging. Bobby killed it with no time to grieve. Yeah, you know you made it when they make a meme for you. Haters that never made it, I'm living a dream for you. Roll up, grab the cushion and roll up. Hold up, better give me what I want. when I show up, you know what I do. Now who coming through? How about you? Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. You're cool. I don't fuck with nobody like me, girls in high school. I don't give a damn that I'm famous. Why I seem like every single celebrity shameless? It's dangerous. Got 50 million, but my swag on food stamps. All these models popping bottles, bitch, I ain't trying to dance. She say, no, I don't want to pay my bills. I need a hardworking woman with respect who will. This for everybody who ain't made it yet. Got five degrees and six figures in debt. Follow your dreams, ho. Follow your, follow your, uh. Somebody call it your, uh. That's destiny. Hold up with the turn up for a second, man. Who testing me? I got so much power, don't know why the heavens blessing me. PLP, I think that is the recipe. So I'ma take a moment, use my power for good. Fuck the bullshit. Do what you love and get out the hood. I'm the one, bitch, I am the one. Like Keanu Reeves, get it done. Yeah, I get it done. No blood on the leaves. They can't leave us hanging. No, no, not no more. Best believe. Yeah, that shit is banging. Bobby killed it with no time to grieve. I'm the one, bitch, I am the one. Like Keanu Reeves, get it done. Yeah, I get it done. No blood on the leaves. They can't leave us hanging. No, no, not no more. Best believe. Yeah, that shit is banging. Bobby killed it with no time to grieve.